We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You listen to the True Faith Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Widrington. I'm joined today by Mr. Paul Lyon, Mr. Alex Hurst, and a very, very special guest. It's everyone's favorite journalist. It's Luke Edwards. <laughs> How are you doing, Luke? You had a quiet um, summer, mate. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've had a very hectic summer. Uh, I normally like to wind down in my summer months, recharge the batteries. Um, but I did the Women's World Cup, which was five weeks Back home for three nights, then off straight off to China, um, and I've just got back from a sort of a very unsatisfactory two-week holiday. <laughs> how how so unsatisfactory? Well, uh, well, we normally go to the Isles of Scilly for two weeks every year, but then my, I mean, hopefully you won't listen to this, but uh, one of my best friends got married in Greece, uh, where I was best man, funnily enough, so um, some people do like me, um, and... Um, <laughs> And yes, we had to go to Greece basically, and then that blew all the summer budget. It cost—it was like cost a ridiculous amount. So we went there for like a week, uh, and then came back, and then did Centre Parks for the first time, which I don't think I'll be doing again. <laughs> I've never, I've never, I've never had the pleasure, Luke. Ah, it's all about the kids, isn't it? But um, not for the adults. No, I won't be going back. So yes, yeah, so hence why I've gone into the new season not quite as cheery and. Um, because calm. you're all, you're such a positive, optimistic uh, soul. Um, <laughs> Anyway, we are we are here to um, we talked about the the defeat at Arsenal on the opening day on a very grim, wet uh, afternoon yesterday. Um, we all seen the result. We all seen the you know the the, the goal, the mistake. Um, but you know, can we? What positives can we pick out of that performance yesterday? Look, I'll start with you. Well, there wasn't a lot to enjoy about any of yesterday, was there? Let's be honest. It, in terms of starts to the season, it was just grim. I don't think it had been as grim as that since the you know Pardew was still there when everybody wanted him gone after that Cardiff game. I can't remember what year that was, but it was miserable from start to finish. Um, believe it or not, I'm really struggling seeing the fans fight amongst themselves at the moment. I think that's really ugly. Um, that's something that should be a source of enjoyment for, for people in this city and the surrounding area has turned into this huge negative where everybody's bickering, social media, where it's in pubs, people are falling out, families are falling out, and it's horrible, and I'm not enjoying that at all. It was a miserable game. The weather was horrendous. I had to leave my seat in the press box because my laptop was getting wet. Uh, so I watched it on a television from inside St. James's Park. It was just horrible. Um, the atmosphere- so, so sort of your own mini boycott. My right? own mini boycott, yeah. It was, and the atmosphere was crap. It was almost like the people who didn't boycott didn't really want to be there. It's like they were there through gritted teeth. Um, and then the football was okay first half. I thought there were a few encouraging signs, and then you could just feel it 
lose its way at the start of the second half. They ran out of ideas, and then it, you know, the goal is just an absolute car crash from start to finish. Three individual errors. They lose the game. They never looked like scoring after the Arsenal. It was just really, really flat. And you know what Steve Bruce needed, whatever you think of him, his appointment is he needed to get off to a good start. And that, unfortunately, has just seemed to harden views of this probably 10% of Newcastle. So I'm going to just put an arbitrary figure on it. 10% of Newcastle supporters who don't want him there are never going to think he's good enough. And then the toxic kind of atmosphere afterwards... I've labelled it as hysteria today in the Telegraph. I've, it's one of the most hysterical reactions I've ever found from a from or ever witnessed from a from a Newcastle result. They lost one nil to Arsenal. It was pretty rubbish, but it wasn't awful. Um, so, what are the positives? It can only get better. Yeah, I mean, in terms of like the positives to pick out, I, I think there was. I think there are there were encouraging signs in that first half. Absolutely, we do look exciting and direct at times. I don't think we did enough of it um, I don't think we created enough clear cut chances I felt that even though we had sort of seemed to have more chances in the first half and this, it, we, we, I think Arsenal always looked more dangerous mm-hmm. um, certainly in that first half like, Alex what, what did you make of what did you make of that Arsenal side that Arsenal performance that was that the was that an Arsenal performance that you expected given the team that they put out I spoke to some Arsenal fans in the run, the run up to this game and uh they use the term where Arsenal only in name these days. We don't resemble anything like the past however many years in English football of success and cohesion and planning. And it looked like an Arsenal team. Our lads looked like they'd never played together before, first parts of that game. And their lads looked like that as well. Um, you know, it, try not to be too negative. Um, and it was easy to be negative yesterday with everything Luke alludes to and the weather. Weather it, it has a role. And it, it wasn't a happy walk out of the ground, um, having seen what we'd seen. Although Arsenal, what missing, and I'm not an expert on Arsenal's first team, but according to some experts, missing up to seven first team players yesterday. Um, they looked really poor. New £72 million signing, not fit enough to start. And I thought it was what an opportunity for Newcastle United and Steve Bruce to, to get off to the good start that, that Luke talks about and it's you know Newcastle United even under the previous manager start seasons badly I can't remember the last time probably 11-12 2011-12 was probably the last time we started the season anything resembling well and it's same old we'll go to a game at Norwich next week we then have Spurs and, and you go if we lose both of those games you're going into the Watford game which is in August and it's looking very very difficult I'm not I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves but there was there was lots there was more Questions raised than, than answers yesterday, which you know I was at the St Etienne game. I was at Hibernian, and Newcastle played well in both of those games, and I was intrigued by what I saw, and I was really interested to see what Bruce's tactical plan would be like. And I think the whole fan base, or much of the fan base, um, now thinks there isn't one. And you've seen Alex Bruce, the manager's son today, in a spot with Craig Hope, friend of the podcast and friend of Luke's, I think. Um, uh, you know, Alex Bruce is in for as long and hard a season as we are. <laughs> if he's going to start getting involved in that kind of stuff every single week, can I just point out one hilarious thing from the game, which I can't claim credit for? Miguel Almiron diving in the box in the in the days of VAR is special. It's absolutely special. It's it's just what what was going through the lad's head. Ah, but if he'd just waited a split second, he would have probably got the penalty. Yeah, because he does actually get shoved in the back, but he's already falling. So he's not only you know it. It's like, come on, at least wait for the contact. So we had the right idea to cheat, um, but he just executed it really badly. But yeah, I know what you mean. It's like, I think it's fair to say we're all getting used to the merits and the, you know, the, the, 
the disadvantages of uh, VAR. Um, Paul, where you were sat, like what? What? Tell us about the atmosphere. Were you in the the, the, the Gallagher corner? Yeah, Strawberry corner. Um, I didn't. Well, it was pretty full to be honest. Um, a lot of uh, what I would describe as day trippers there, filling in uh, seats where familiar faces who had like season tickets for years. Um, that that weren't there. That was that was my first thought when I went in the ground. I was like, who am I going to see today? Um, and yeah, there was a lot lots of empty uh, seats apart from my own, which was a bit unusual. Somebody was already sat in my seat. I was like, oh yeah, don't, I don't want I don't want to say it, but oh, I've been here since 1995. <laughs> um, so I was ready for that, and that was all before the game. But um, yeah, I was just it was the atmosphere. I just wasn't it wasn't there. It wasn't like it wasn't angry. It wasn't uh, it was just really flat. Um, and it mirrored like like Alex uh, said. So it was just it was just, it, it summed up the weather and the day, and it was just resignation. Was great, do you think? Ah, yeah, of the just, situation and the see, it's like, like Luke said, just, like, I was almost begrudgingly going in that, and it was just uh, when really first day of the season, it should be like new ref- renewed hope, and and you're going in and you, you want to see the new signings, and um, I've been to the uh, uh, the Saint Etienne friendly, and yeah, I was quite I was quite uh, pleased with what I saw um, coming off the bench, uh, new signings and things like that. So I was I was like going into this one actually really confident. And then we'll come out of it. It's like one of those classic Newcastle United missed opportunities. I mean, I, I saw, you know, there was a couple of chances that Joe Linton had in that first half, which mm. I thought there was one where he carved, you know, a little chance out for himself with kind of the whole Arsenal defence sort of scurrying to get to get a block in it. It went straight at Bert Leno, but, you know, it was, it was a really encouraging sign that he was looking to be direct, makes things happen, not just going to sort of sit and wait for the ball to come to him. Uh, he had another glancing header that kind of went wide, which which could have caused a bit of, bit of trouble. But I mean, two 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 players that I thought were sort of stand out in that first half, who tried to grab the game by the scruff of the neck, make things happen. One was Almiron, um, you know, without diving or without diving. But he, he, I found that from a central berth, he, he seemed to be really really effective in you know trying to. He was asking for the ball. He was coming deep for the ball. He was he was dribbling past players. He was really trying to make things happen. And that other player. Who was kind of playing on the, the sort of the, the point of the midfield triangle in more advanced role was was Isaac Hayden. I was I was I was really impressed with with him. And you know, he, he's ne- for me, he's never been that holding midfielder that a lot of people think he's. For me, he's always been that box to box player. Um, I think he scored against Wolves last season in, in that sort of advanced in that advanced role. And I thought, um, you know, those were two players who I thought sort of stood out in that in, in that first half, Alex. It was one of the most interesting things to me, this slight tweak in the formation from Bruce playing three central midfielders. He's done it all throughout preseason, rather than the two that Rafa Harden and the three forward players. I don't think it worked yesterday. I think Arsenal worked it out fairly quickly. Um, you know, the fact that the fullback sat so deep for a long time in the first half meant there was a real kind of void and you had Isaac Hayden, John Joe Shelby and Sean Longstaff kind of getting in the way of each other. Yes, Hayden did some good stuff in the first half, but I, I think he has done his best work for Newcastle as a whole midfielder and, and the, he might be capable of other things but you know Pep I go back to it and, and I don't and I've said on the podcast before I don't just want to talk about the previous manager constantly throughout the season it will happen whether we want to talk about it or not but you look back to Pep Guardiola saying we, we couldn't cope with Newcastle's whole midfielders that they were Sean Longstaff and Isaac Hayden I'd, I'd, you know I was interested to see how the switch would work and I don't think it did work. I think Almiron, as the game went on, dropped deeper and deeper and deeper for the ball. Joe Linton dropped deeper and deeper and deeper for the ball. 
And if we can see it, the manager can see it. You know, if if, if three gobshites plus Luke in a room can 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 acknowledge that. Amazing that you didn't include Luke yeah. in the well, collective he's, he's of guests. He's got to be polite to guests. <laughs> he he will know. He doesn't need us to or anyone to tell him. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Knew all the tactical nuances. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> see, spot what was going on. Well, look, Luke, you you were there. You know, it was reported on on social media that that Bruce shouted across, "What the fuck is going on?" Is that true? Is it? Is it? Is it kind of the? Is it? Okay. Is it an accurate? Reflection? Well, I've had several conversations about this day. I wasn't actually there because I my laptop was getting flooded, so I was inside the press room, so I didn't hear it. However, I have spoken to somebody today. Okay, I spoke to Steve Bruce, um, <laughs> who said that it was something to do with the uh, substitutes board and someone not being able to operate it it behind him. Whether I believe that, I don't know, because the substitute didn't come on for another X amount of minutes. But that was what the what the fuck is going on here. I'm allowed to swear, aren't I? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah fine, good. Just check in. Family if you didn't. Um, so that is supposedly what happened. I mean, there was no doubt that there was some confusion about when Williams came on. Um, okay, we're, we're, talking about, we're talking about central midfield before I got distracted by that. I thought Longstaff was poor yesterday. I think we I, saw, I, agree. I think we saw a player who either hasn't fully recovered from his knee injury or was never quite as good as he looked before he picked up the injury. I'm hoping it's the former. Um, Shelby was good until he picked up that injury. Then they carried him for the rest for the rest of the time he was on the pitch. And Hayden was very good. So we're going to talk about the positive. I think with Newcastle fans, and I'm, I'm going to say it because this is what I do, and it winds people up. They have to be very very careful with those new signings because they've come in with this great positivity, excited to sign for them. Jolinton was, you know, desperate to come in January. He's waited all this time and then he had a good first half and then he just drifted. And I think those players, same with uh, Maximum um, and, you know, Carol will know what to expect. So particularly those two attacking players, they need to come into a positive atmosphere. My worry is they haven't come into a positive atmosphere. They've come into, if you read the more toxic stuff where, they know, because Rafa allegedly didn't want Jolinton, I feel sorry for the guy. Rafa did want him. That's not true. What he didn't want to do was spend forty million on him, so he did rate him. He also wanted his contract sorted before. This is right. This is true. He wouldn't sanction the deal until his future was sorted. That was had to be the priority for Rafa. So I'm a bit worried that there's this perception of him that he wasn't wanted by Rafa. Therefore, he's never going to be good enough. This is where we find ourselves now at Newcastle. Well, Rafa wouldn't have done that. Rafa wouldn't have signed him. If Rafa was there, there wouldn't be any confusion over the substitutions. If Rafa was there, they'd have known how to use the substitutes board. We're going to get that all season until we win some football. No, I, think absolutely, I think absolutely we're going right. to keep doing it. I know we don't want to talk about it, but that is going to be the reaction to everything Steve Bruce does, the players do. Every goal conceded, wouldn't have conceded that when Rafa was there. Oh, they'd have beaten Arsenal if Rafa was there, because Rafa was there. And that's what we're going to get all season. For me, at some point, whether we like it or not, we're all going to have to move on. I've moved on. No, that, that, that's, that's fair enough, and I think... Um... I think what you say about that, you know, that's that's what I was led to believe about Joel Linton as well, and the, that, the fact that Rafa did rate him just not for that money, yeah. and, and and if that money was available, actually Rafa wants to make his own decisions about how to yeah. how to utilize that money in the transfer market, mm-hmm. and I think that sort of goes that's that that seems to be something that could be very. But feasible. that baggage is on this guy who's forty million. He's a young kid. He's a forty million. There's still that perception, and people will cling on to it that Rafa didn't want him, so therefore he's not good enough. And I think we've got to be. I think there's a real player in there. I think he's got all the physical attributes. I saw him play for Hoffenheim twice last season against Man City. Liked him without thinking he's amazing, but you, and he's really highly rated in Germany. They've obviously signed a player of potential. 
he's not going to realise his potential. I don't think any of them are at the moment with the current atmosphere. And if the, if the atmosphere inside the ground stays like it was on Sunday, Newcastle are in a hell of a lot of trouble. I don't know how we solve that problem. The four people in this room aren't going to solve that problem. But it is a problem, and at some point it's going to have to be addressed. And I know, I'm sure you're going to ask me this, but um, for me, everybody's in varying states of mourning for, for the departure of Benitez. At some point... The, the club either gets over it or it doesn't, because if it doesn't get over it, they're going to get relegated. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I think my favourite Joel Linton moment yesterday was the, uh, he chested it up and then headed it, which I've, ne- I've never seen a footballer do. It was absolutely spectacular. Um, a point of just to go back uh, before, and I'll, I'll ask you this, Paul, um, just talking about the, the three centre midfielders, um, Alex mentioned before about our, our wing-backs essentially really dropping deep in the full-back, which left just... I mean, I, I noticed that the, the the left, you know, the Monreal and Maitland Niles were were able just to just to advance yep. into our final third without any. Because there was there was nobody there was nobody there blocking it. Like, yeah. what, what was your perception of of, of of Arsenal's sort of ability just to get past our lines yesterday? Um, well, it's it's flabbergasted me because it's just like like we've got these these banks of three, which are centre back and centre midfield. And yet we're just like sort of retreated, like almost hunkered down in our own own half, which made it like almost impossible to sort of spring a trap and get forward again. Almost like it was a disconnect between the forward forward lines and um in the midfield. Um, and then yeah, we we didn't seem phased that then that that their fullbacks uh, like were coming coming on to it. So it was just I don't know. I still think we defended all right. It was just it was just a case we could have done we could have done a lot to prevent the balls coming into the box. Um, but I, but I think that goes back to the, like the the system, and it just didn't work. And, and Arsenal figuring that out basically. And, and talking about the system, obviously the second half after the substitutions were made, Shelby had to come off. Longstaff came off. There was a confusion about Willem. So obviously before before the before the game on the, on the match day pod, you and me, Alex, were talking about. Well, hang on, there's there's, there's already three, there's three defenders there plus Willems who can play centre midfield, which he did for Frankfurt frequently last season. Yet. We had three centre midfielders on the pitch, and we didn't have. Well, we basically only had Willems as a centre midfielder option off the bench. However, he didn't come on as a centre midfielder, although he thought he did. He came on as a left wing back. So suddenly we had we had a situation where we had three centre midfielders. Two of them two of them came off, and we had four defenders on the bench. Now, in terms of like, what was your perception of our formation, our shape in that second half after that Sam Maximum well, substitution was made? Like you said, take you back to the Trent House pub. 1pm yesterday, teams announced him, there's no, where's Key? There's no central midfield on the bench. You've got Sean Longstaff coming back from long-term injury. You've got John Joe Shelby, who's John Joe Shelby. You know, not the fittest, but a good player. Um, and then you've got Hayden, who's, you know, if he doesn't go down twice a game holding something, so, you know, what's up? It was a shock, and it, and it seemed like, a, you know, things can seem like a gamble pre-game, and then they look kind of reckless, negligent post-game, and it's easy with hindsight, but... That you know, you could argue that when Shelby goes off, if it's a like for like for Key, Newcastle win that game. It's it's fine margins like that, and I think that's the argument today. People are saying, well, yes, we haven't been smashed. Yes, we could have won that game. Arsenal didn't look like the kind of side to me who were going to get back into it when they when if they want to go behind. But we, for some reason, we've got kind of we have left ourselves short in central midfield this season as a squad. Callback's not on the twenty-five, so you've basically got Key as a backup to one of those three, if he insists on playing those three every single game, obviously you could switch formation. 
But that was a real strange one for me. And in the second half, it, look, it just didn't work. I mean, it was interesting to me that after the goal was conceded, Shaw and Lascelles had a bit of a, a public spat about who was it. Not surprised. Called. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, there was clearly a little bit of confusion amongst the players about who was supposed to be doing what. Um, once Shelby went off, it, it didn't look like there was a plan. It looked like it was very much get the ball to Jondro. Jondro get the ball to the two forward lads. And even though Willems did push forward a little bit more and Mankio did push forward a little bit more trying to get something, we never looked like scoring. And in the end of the game, I've heard stuff on social media saying the team were booed off. I don't think that's an accurate representation. I didn't, I didn't hear that. It was more just of a, a grim kind of, well, well that, was, that was rubbish, really. And I, I don't know, because ultimately, like Luke says, we're going to have to win some football matches or we're going to be in this position for a long time to come. A lot of supporters don't think Steve Bruce can win those football matches. It's up to him. You know, he's got the opportunity to prove us or prove anyone else wrong. Um, yesterday wasn't wasn't a great start, but that's all. It wasn't a great start. He's he's got next week against a, a newly promoted Norwich side to right those wrongs. You know, it looked like to me. So I'm just going to interject. It just looked like a team. As you, one of you said earlier, they looked like they haven't played together. And actually, do you know what? They basically haven't really. I mean, they came in so late. That there has been, I mean, Steve Bruce has been manager, what, three and a half weeks? Is it not even four weeks yet, is it? And it just looked like a, it looked a mess. And actually, when you sort of take a step back from it all, are we really that surprised? It looks like a mess. A manager has been there three weeks with players who've been there a few days. It's, it, and that second half was, was really bad. I mean, this it was is, really I mean, bad. This is what I wanted to ask you, you know, is this, is, is the fact, because the way I saw it, where, it was, where we were, you know, Hayden was playing at the point of a triangle, then in the second half, Hayden dropped back, so almost like the triangle was pointing the other way, and you had Richie and Almiron behind Sam Maximan yeah. and Joel Linton. That's and it took me ages to work out what the actual formation was. Do you think, as you've just possibly alluded to there, is this is this teething problems for Bruce, or do you think it's a, is this a worrying sign of things to come? I don't think he would have had as many games as a manager as he's had done if he didn't know what he was doing tactically. I think that's just a bit ludicrous, really. So I will say that I just think it all fell apart yesterday. I don't quite know why that happened but it just all looked a bit panicked and, and I genuinely don't think people did know where they were staying so I'm going to say it's teething problems I think we've all got to hope it's teething problems if that's still happening in a month's time six weeks time or after the second international break which is I think you're, that's probably normally when the league settles down a little bit um, then it would be a major cause for concern I I just think there there was a lot of confusion yesterday and the, and the other issue I, and I've, I said this in the press room afterwards you've gone from a manager Right, Rafa Benitez, who was stand there, do that, move then, move there. And then suddenly you've got a manager who, in the best will in the world, Steve Bruce is not that type of manager. He's not, there are different types of manager out there. And Rafa was a complete control freak, and Steve is a bit more laissez faire, and he will expect the players to be able to think for themselves a little bit more. That transition is also equals teething problems. I just think it just looked like a team that had spent half a pre-season without a manager. And when they were put under pressure, they were okay when they weren't under pressure. But as soon as they were put under pressure, I think it fell apart a little bit. So Alex has said it. We're all going to say it. They go to Norwich. They get a bad result against Norwich. They lose to Tottenham. Then I think we're already talking about crisis and every place is going to go into meltdown, isn't it? But It's how the industry works. Yeah, it's just how yeah. it works. I and mean, how any football club works, but particularly Newcastle at a time like this. Uh, so they need to win a football game from somewhere and then I think it just eases off the little bit of confidence breathes but it's just I don't know I'm not confident this is going to be a good season I haven't been confident it was going to be a good season since Rafa left Um, uh, because Rafa left of course but also the timing of it 
in that they hadn't had they didn't have to sign any players until three weeks ago. And this is it. I mean, the 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 club were very very sluggish, having apparently known that Rafa Benitez wasn't going to sign that contract at that point. It t- it then took them a good. We didn't. We didn't get a new manager. For, like you say, we didn't. So Steve another Bruce two weeks. It was another two weeks. Yeah, and then they had to wait for 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 Steve to sign off the transfers. So, but did he sign them? How can you say he signed them when they're all targets that they've been linked with before? Okay, he's green lighted the transfers, but that doesn't mean he signed them. So, and I think they're also going to suffer because they have, whether you think it's sensible or not, they've left money back for January. Partly because of how late Steve came in, they realised they couldn't just splurge all the money now and leave themselves with nothing in January when the manager needed to get in. He just didn't have... He's had no time to look at what he actually needs. He's sort of taken what he needs from what Rafa decided they needed. So the whole thing is a mess, and the mess is not going to clear up anytime soon. Um, So, But hopefully, hopefully, this isn't a sign to come, to go back to your original question, hopefully it's not a sign to come. It is teething problems, and things settle down the longer they get together and the longer they get on the training pitch. It's interesting, though, that he, he's come in and, and kept the same similar formation, five at the back, whatever you want to call it, but che- tweaked it slightly. Uh, uh, probably would have been easier to just say more of the same lads, you know, get two wide players out to, to deliver yeah. stuff into the box, track back lads, let the full-backs overlap. That, I mean, with hindsight, again, easy to say, but that probably, to me, would have been a more sensible approach when you are trying to bed players in and work out, is, is Mankio any good? Do I need this right-back to sign? I mean, the right-back signed, what, like, Thursday or something. Yeah, It'd be very difficult to get him in the in the side, and may, maybe when he has the two fullbacks he wants in the team, that formation will make a lot more sense. But we can only judge it on what we've seen so far. That's it. I think we were very, very narrow. We lacked width. Um, but I mean, in terms of you know, we talked a little bit about Joe Linton. Um, Paul, how did you rate um, um, Alan Son Saint Maximan? Uh, you know, he came on to a big role, yeah. um, big role from Alex on the match day pod as well. He really enjoyed that. Um, he seemed to be he seemed to be pacey, direct, positive. Um, what did you make of his of overall um, debut? Uh, p- uh, positive impact. Um, I suppose that's what you want want to say. I wanted the same start. I mean, just because he's a new new body in there and he's exciting. Cause, um, when he came on against uh, Saint Etienne, he just tore the tore the place apart, basically. But um, I suppose that's an inferior opposition and all the rest of it. But he's he's exciting um, to watch and someone that's going to get you off your seat and things like that, which is which is uh, a long time coming. Is you know as much as I, I love and respect uh, Rafa, he's, he's very pragmatic and like you say, every every player had its bo- had his box to play in and very directed. And this is what you got to do. So to see a player uh, play with a lot of freedom. Um, it's, it's exciting and like I say long overdue at uh, St James's so yeah, and he, he did alright um, I wish he hadn't fallen over than that, that. <laughs> uh, St James's appro- part groundsman had him I know he's just approaching the box at, uh, at the Gallagher end and just slipped at the wrong moment it was a shame because like, uh, he looked lively um, and yeah just get him on the, I think we need to get him on the ball and probably in, a, in deeper positions and really get get it at full backs uh, directly and try to get some balls in the box and Try and get some goals because, like I say, we need we need to get off the off the mark. Hundred percent. I mean, you know, Sam Maximan seem to have a really positive impact. But but Alex, how do, how does he how does he fit into that side with Almiron? I mean, do you, do you th- do you, how you know what what formation do you think we'll play at Norwich, and and then what formation should we play at Norwich? I'll probably give us a few days. We'll talk about it in the match preview for patrons of the week. But I'm. You know, Newcastle could play any formation and get beaten, and we can change things here and there. And you just you just want to see us go to Norwich. Norwich first game back in the Premier League, three years in a row for us, 
playing teams the first game back in the Premier League. It's going to be bouncing. The players are going to have to be quite smart. They're going to have to be quite smart with the referee. They're going to have to be quite smart with their opponents who will be full of adrenaline, full of energy. And, you know, the kind of approach that you saw in the first half yesterday probably will work again. You know, contain, seed possession, fine, have the ball if you're going to do that with it. I don't mind any of that. In terms of these lads we're talking about, Almiron and St. Maximum, I think the issue you have with them is even Almiron, who only played, what, like seven games last season, his teammates aren't on the same wavelength. You know, look at Matt Ritchie yesterday and Almiron had a bit of a, a word with each other again when Almiron tried to play him in and, and that and that happens. But Rafa clearly, we, we all signed Almiron and we thought, great, we're signing number 10 for the first time in 35 years. And a genuine number 10, we've signed him from Atlanta. He's going to play behind Rondon and make all these runs. And Rafa went, no, he's playing out wide. And you thought, well, what's the point? Why we'll put his pace on there? But it, wor- but it worked. And, and now Bruce has decided we're going to bring him inside. And... You saw glimpses in the in the two friendlies, and again, it's inferior opposition, but you saw glimpses of how that can work, particularly with Joe Linton playing the ball after the midfielders playing him through. You just worry in a game like Norwich next week, where Norwich, Norwich will dominate possession next week. I'm, I'm positive of it. Um, when he doesn't have the ball armour, and the same applies to St. Maximan, are they tactically disciplined enough in English football to do the defensive work? Because, yeah, it would be great to go and play 4-3-3 next week, or 5 Five two three or three four three, and get the lads forward and get their pace on the break. But is that realistic? Having just come off a defeat, playing against a, a Norwich side who, yes, they've just been humped at Liverpool, but created a lot of chances. I know it's Grant Hanley, a centre back, so we're all thinking happy days here. But you know, so I don't, I don't know what formation I want us to play. I just want to see the team disciplined and put in a good shift and a good performance. I don't think the formation with the players that you're talking about is going to be that that important because I imagine the plan is for them to interchange quite a lot. You know, Almiron, Saint Maximan. Linton, if they're flexible, and you, I mean, you've got Muto on the bench as well to throw into that, and Carroll down the line, and then Dwight Gale hopefully as well. There may be a little bit of flexibility, and that's what you saw in the Rafa as well. You saw Perez able to, to basically work across the whole of the front three, um, and it worked. So I'd like, I'd like to see us going back to what worked. Essentially, as a, a long answer for you. Yeah, I mean, look, I was just going to sort of say, you know, you did allude to it before, but what, do you, what do you regard as the biggest differences between that we that we can that we will see and we can expect from? Steve Bruce uh, side again versus a Rafa side. Obviously, Rafa was very keen on the micromanagement and the and the, and the you know the, the fine margins um, yeah. and very all the intricacies and nuances and, and try, just trying to find you know little little ways to get ahead of his opponent. How you alluded to sort of Steve Bruce having a, you know more of a, a you know f- sort of like. Free approach to, to the game, expecting players yeah. to think for themselves. How do you think that will manifest itself? I would say he has a. I, yeah, I mean, I should be. What I mean is, there will be a structure there and a tactical structure. I think, rightly or wrongly, I think they will try and play. I think we saw it in the first half. They will try and play more on the front foot. And I think you saw them pressing from the front a lot more yesterday, which you didn't under Rafa. Rafa, if you, certainly against the big teams, would he just dropped off. And he would try and nick a goal from somewhere. It's not rocket science what he was doing, but he just did it incredibly well. And he had the players so well drilled. But they lost 11 out of 12 against the big six. So this is the Premier League now, rightly or wrongly. It's fucking depressing, actually. But that big six are head and shoulders above everyone else. So what was Steve... The Norwich game is a really interesting one because it's like going to Huddersfield, isn't it? You said it there. Do you remember they went to Huddersfield after being promoted and lost? Um, after Just after promotion? Um, I watched that in a pub in Newquay, funnily enough. Um, and it was grim. It was awful. And it was like, you know, 
it's a real banana skin game again to use a cliche but it's a horrible game because Norwich will be really up for it they'll be they're, they're hugely positive and they'll really go at Newcastle now does Steve for these people who say he doesn't have the tactical nows is he going to adjust the way they play are they going to try and press from the front are they going to do what Liverpool did to Norwich and win the ball high up the pitch and punish them or is he going to say okay you want to come on to us we'll play on the counter attack so it's almost a really interesting test of are they going to be as adaptable? Are they going to be adaptable uh, under Steve Bruce? Or is he still going to say, right, for, for, you know, for better or for worse, we're just going to try and impose ourselves on the opposition? I don't think Newcastle are good enough to impose themselves on the opposition. So I don't know which way he goes. I think his instincts, because it's Newcastle and he's caught up maybe in this romantic idea of what it is to be you know, the Newcastle he supported or whatever else, I think he'll try and dominate the team. But it'll be interesting to see whether they can go away from home and actually beat a team, not just nick a win. Because Rafa tended to nick wins, did it brilliantly. And that's the thing, even last season and the season before, we were, we were largely dreadful away from home. Um, even when we did pick up points, remember that, that Palace game, that Cardiff game last year? Oh God, the Southampton away. Nil, nil. Good, good points, terrible games. And yeah, that, I'll, even as someone who travelled to those games, I'll take the points over the performances. But I suppose this comes back to, and, and you know, what you just talked about there, what will, what will Bruce do? comes back to the interesting thing for a lot of fans is what kind of club do Newcastle United currently think they mm-hmm. are? Do they, do they, you know, Steve Bruce came in and he said a lot of the right things in press conferences. We don't just want to be in relegation battles. Who does? Um, do you think there's a genuine belief from Lee Charnley and Steve Bruce that this season they're kicking on from last season? Or do you think it's all about staying up? I don't think they can do. So in, re- in reality, if Rafa had stayed, everything was in, was in place for them to kick on. The manager was there, they had the time, they had an established way of doing things, the supporters were with them. As soon as Rafa left, this season was a relegation battle. Now, I have my... We can all talk about why Rafa left. We don't even need to go into that now. But the moment Rafa left, this team was in a relegation battle because they'd left themselves five weeks to do all their transfer business and they'd left themselves effectively free by the time they found a new manager. This season is a write-off. I've just been, you know, I've just done a radio interview in Ireland, and I said it is fucking depressing, but staying up is going to be an achievement this season, and that's horrible, and that's everything that we didn't want it to be this season. That is everything we hoped it would not be, but it is, and that's the reality of the situation. They are back in this, staying up. Now, the, 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 the opposition to Mike Ashley is based on this is what he always wants. I don't think it is what he wanted this summer. I think he wanted the team that people will kill me for saying that. I'm sure they will. But I think the idea was to kick on. But as soon as Rafa went, there was no hope of kicking on. So if they're not, if they're being truthful, staying up is the objective, certainly. But if I turn that on its head, for half the Premier League, staying up is the objective at the start of the season. They have to see where they are in December. But I think staying up will be the objective this season. Which then, just again, we've been here for 12 years. Will they try and kick on again next summer? Probably. Will they do it with Steve Bruce as manager? Don't know. Will the fans give Steve Brother a chance? I don't know. But yeah, there, there is no way you can look at this season and think it's anything other than another battle to stay up. And then the one difference I suspect there will be, and he's gone on record and said this, is that the lessons that Steve Bruce learned from Hull was that the FA Cup is not a competition to just be ignored and just to get toss off, basically, because... He will, I think, believe that actually playing a strong team in the FA Cup, but that could also tits up. They can all still go out in the third round if you play your strongest team. So, and plus the, the, the last two seasons that Bruce had in the Premier League with Hull, he finished 
first sixteenth yeah. and eighteenth. Yeah. So there's a there's a real danger. I mean, if we're if we're probably probably likely to finish around there anyway. <laughs> it's like, do we do we have the squad? It, be, it will be interesting when it comes around if people actually start arguing. No, you shouldn't be playing your strongest team because they're in a relegation battle. Having spent ten years, twelve years, saying you should be playing your strongest team because it's the FA Cup and it's all we've got to hope for. If Steve Bruce then gets hammered for playing his strongest team, <laughs> brilliant. Um, but no, I take all your points. It's all valid points. That's why managers do it. They toss it off because they want to rest players after the hectic Christmas period. That's why they do it. So you know, when it push comes to shove at that time. And you've only got one fit centre forward. Are you going to play him? Yeah, exactly. Or will you play? Or will you play Dwight Gale? Probably play Dwight Gale. Yeah, that, was, that will be a vast improvement on playing Hosselu last season. In yeah, exactly. The most depressing game I've ever the, seen against Watford. This season is depressing. I'm going to say that now on August the 12th. It's depressing. Everything that's happened this summer was depressing and frustrating and annoying. But it just goes back to my central argument: is at some point we have we. I keep saying we. The club, journalists supporters are going to have to put what's happened this summer behind them and either decide are they going to get behind the team as they know they can do like they did under Rafa or are we going to continue to snipe and boycott and all of that sort of stuff at the moment I don't think it's going to clear up anytime soon but there is going to come a cut-off point where actually what happens and it's not up to me to say to supporters what they should do if you don't want to go to the game don't go that's absolutely you know that is perfectly your right but I would hope that the fans who went to the game would at least try and do the one thing that Newcastle United sports, when they're at their best, do better than anyone in the country. And that's really... Well, you know what I'm... Mean, you know, they make turn it into a very, very intimidating place for the opposition to play in, and they make it a very positive place for the home team to play in. We saw that under Rafa. When St James's Park was bouncing, like it was against Man City, they pulled off a result that no other English team has done in 2019. That can't happen artificially. They have to win football games. They have to go to Norwich and get a good result, have a good performance. But at some point, we're going to get to a situation where you either get behind Steve Bruce's Newcastle or you don't. And if they don't, I, I, I honestly think this has got a 2008, 2009 look of it already in that they'll end up changing manager in February, March, and they'll go down. That's a really grim outlook, Luke, but it's very difficult to disagree with it, to be honest. Um, Paul, I mean, we, Luke just touched on the on the boycott there. Um, obviously, um, there was a small section boycotted. Um, I, I felt in, in, in bigger picture, it was largely underwhelming in terms of participation. Do you, you know, is, do you think there's any appetite for, f- for future boycotts at all? Um, what what do you think the solution is there, or do, do you think an absolutely new approach is yeah. is required to to spark people's imagination? Yeah, have you got the answer? I I don't have the answer. <laughs> All right. Um, I mean, the attendance was uh, what was the lowest since April two thousand sixteen or something that I read. Um, but yeah, it doesn't appear to be any sort of appetite. I mean, the, the, I think the, the aim is to get that ground almost empty in that, and I just. I mean that's where you, you lose the first argument, is it? You want everyone doing the same thing and say like, it's not gonna, it's just not gonna happen. Um, whether that make a difference or not, I've boycotted in the past and um, we're st- still here, we're still in the same situation. Um, and yeah, there's, there's definitely there's got to be a new approach taken, I think. And um, I'm not saying I'm like I say, well, I haven't got the answers here, but there, there's people motivated um, to to you know get out there and sort of try. Uh, Get people boycotting Arsenal, but where 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 do they go now? I mean, what's what's the question? What the question is, what do you do next? And is it another boycott? Is it is that just that it? Or going to become boycott United or something? It's just like 
it's is it worthwhile? Could we be channeling that that sort of uh, angst into something more more practical, more more worthwhile, and something that's actually going to make a difference? But absolutely, I mean, I mean, I'm in, I'm in a position where I you know I was part of the Magpie Group last season. I helped organise protests. I know the I know the hard work that the volunteers put in to sort of make this happen, and it's a sort of step in the unknown. A lot of it, it's it's a sort of leap of faith. Often, it's sort of put your neck on the line and say, right, we're going to boycott this and we're going to protest here, and you you turn up and you just you just hope that you've yeah. hope that people have sort of captured it. But I mean, some of the biggest problems that that I that, that, that I experienced when I was in the Magpie Group was reaching this offline audience, reaching the audience. You know, Twitter. Facebook, to an extent, it's it's a microcosm. It's 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 a world of its own. It's a small pocket of of the fan base of the match going fan base. And I haven't seen, I didn't see evidence this time around that 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 was necessarily going to going to going to change that the that the status quo. That like how how are we going to reach those people? And if either we we can't those people haven't been reached or they have been reached and it's not for them and yeah and, and, as, and as you've touched on oh, the thing I will say is that the, the intentions of of the Magpie group are good oh, absolutely yeah. absolutely there is nothing wrong with the intentions we all want Mike Ashley to be gone I think we I think we can all you can probably sit down in any bar any group of Newcastle fans and they'll all say exactly the same thing but you're right they've tried the boycott the most successful boycott happened years ago was the Tottenham one and then they spent eight million pounds the following summer, if you remember, and they, they gave it to completely the wrong manager. I'm pretty, I'm pretty but, yeah, I'm pretty sure that ended well. No, um, <laughs> but was, I mean, it ended in relegation. But I mean, yeah. that's the problem. But they spent eight; they were the fourth they highest did. net spenders in Europe. They built this big transfer kit up and then gave it to Steve McLaren. Now there will be fans out there who are worried that Steve Bruce is another Steve McLaren. I get all that, but the boycott has been tried. How can you say to a dad or a mum? Um, right, okay, we're boycotting the game on Saturday and they've got two kids who want to go to the match, which is what they did with their family. You know, that's how they got into the game. They went with the parents or they went with their uncle or they went with a grandparent. They went to the game. How can you tell those people now you can't do it because we're boycotting to get rid of Mike Ashley? They've tried to get... There is... The, the militant core at Newcastle is probably only one-tenth of the match-going audience. So it's, you know, 5,000 to 6,000, 7,000 people. Their intentions... Every single person in that group's intentions are good but they're not going to persuade enough people not to go to the game. They're just not going to happen. It's never going to happen at Newcastle. It's never, never, ever going to happen because it's about more than going to the match. It's part of a ritual, a coming of age, a family activity. It's what people do at the weekends. In what a large proportion of people do for their weekends is about going to the match. Lots of people give up. They stop going. They get disillusioned and they get replaced by a new generation. So this is constant churn. It's just not going to happen. I don't know where we go. The only way Mike Ashley sells, and I keep, I've said this all along through, you know I have, the only sells is someone offers him £350 million, put the, put the money in escrow, and he's gone. I don't buy the idea that he doesn't want to sell. He will only sell on terms that are good for him. Is that the same thing? Is he a reluctant seller? I don't know. He will sell on the terms that are good for Mike Ashley. I don't think he's going to sell up because of a boycott. And I hate to say that, and I feel like I'm pulling the rug up underneath some people I know, we're very committed and very passionate about wanting what I want, which is Mike Ashley gone. I've written how awful Mike Ashley is for 12 years. I've done my bit to try and get rid of him. I've put public pressure on him. He just ignores it. He hates my guts, apparently. So I've got <laughs> must that, be doing something. I've right. got that badge of honour. You know, Newcastle. some Newcastle fans hate me. Lots of Sunderland fans hate me. Mike Ashley hates me. Woo! Um, but 
you know, it's quite the fan club. It is, but I, I don't know what more we can do other than find make the club attractive as we possibly can do to somebody who's got the money to buy it because. He's not going to be bullied in the negotiation. He's not going to sell for less than he wants. He's not going to be forced by a public campaign like Amanda Staveley to put pressure on him to accept less. None of that is going to work with Mike Ashley. He's going to sell when someone gives him what he wants to sell. And we, you, just so you know, the takeover stuff will start again in October, November, probably. I'll guarantee it will start again. Because someone will have a little nibble and think, oh, how much do you want for it? And then it you know, might get leaked, it might not, but it'll be there in the background again. And we're background with this horrible... In the meantime, I just, I, you know, I can say it. I just want everybody to pull together in the short term, stop fighting amongst themselves. It's very easy for me to say, and again, I'll get criticism, but if the club doesn't pull together now, as hard as that is, and as sad as you are about everything that's happened, there's a, there's, it's only going to end in one way, and that's relegation. Whether people can pull together, whether there's the appetite to pull together... I don't know, but it, it's going to have to happen at some point before Christmas where the atmosphere is going to have to improve around the football club. Absolutely, and I think, you know, in terms of, like, people pulling together, it's kind of, you know, unfortunately, or right or wrong, the, the, the ones calling for, for, for us all to be united and pull in the same direction are in the minority. <laughs> I mean, that, that, yeah. that's just the reality. And, and our, and, you know, People don't want to help Ashley keep the club, do they? So they think if they pull together in the same direction, you're giving in to what Mike Ashley wants. I don't think Mike Ashley really gives a shit, if I'm perfectly honest. He's going to ignore the boycott and he's going to ignore you if you pull together. So it's what you want to do. Okay, there is an argument out there on the left field that if Newcastle are relegated, it's more likely that Ashley sells up. Well, we hasn't sold up the last two times he's been relegated. He just pumps a load of money in, gets them promoted, and then takes the money out again and damages them in the Premier League. So we're in this horrible catch-22. I don't think pulling together and getting behind the team in the short term when you've got a new manager and new players is giving in to Mike Ashley. I think that's supporting the football club and the football team and the team that needs you. If it's still bad and Steve Bruce has been a disastrous manager, then by all means call for Steve Bruce to be sacked and for him to to go nobody will have any problem with that I certainly wouldn't have a problem with that but at the moment it just doesn't seem like they're going to achieve anything this season with the way the atmosphere is at the minute and as I said at the very top of this if it stays like it was on Sunday they're doomed they're doomed already they'll go, they'll go down and Steve Bruce will be replaced in February and March and they'll be relegated Alex how, how, how can we how can we show a United front as a fan base what do you, what do you think the, is, the, is the quickest route to that because I, I think Luke I think Luke's absolutely right in saying that in, unless that atmosphere changes unless the toxicity sort of quells then we, we, we aren't going to be in trouble as a club you know I wrote yesterday in my match report for the game that I sat in the pub alone Adam because someone was late are you um, drinking alone the metros yes. were off man the metros were off the metros were on off. a match day I sat and uh, and, and eavesdropped on like a weirdo uh, on, on, on two different <laughs> sets of blokes and I'm, I promise you getting weirder if, if, yeah <laughs> If you didn't, if you weren't invested in Newcastle United, you were, you'd think they were talking about two different football clubs, yeah. two completely different football clubs. One, everything was great. The players were happy. They they like training. Um, they're going to be attacking. They're going to score goals. Where you know, not everyone loved Rafa Benitez. Most people did. Most people did, but not everyone did. Um, and those people are willing to give Steve Bruce a chance. They'd be willing to give him 10 games, that famous 10 games Steve McLaren asked for. Um, and I just think it's impossible to unite a fan base who've been through what we've been through. It doesn't mean I think Luke's wrong in that what, that the fan base needs to unite. But to you know, pe- people have been not going to St. James's Park for over 10 years now, and they're not going to give in, and they're not going to switch because we've spent 30 million quid net this summer. I mean, unite on a match day. Sorry, that's Sorry. just to clarify. Yeah, yeah, on a match day. I'm not saying that 
yeah. outside of the games that you don't have the right to say my cash. You know, all of those things. Sorry, I just wanted to yeah, but just enough. clarify. When you go to the match, I just think you need to get behind the team. But then oh, that sounds horrible. Preaching anyway, to the so, choir here. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I've moved my seat. Um, we've moved from Block V. I think there's about 70 of us in the second section last season. We've moved to the corner and it was... It was good yesterday. I thought the atmosphere was, was good from the corner. The rest of the ground didn't want to join in. But, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. And this is when we, when we talk about boycotts. Boycotts will be a success this season if we don't win any games. You know, that, that's, that's football, isn't it? Like, look be at a natural look, boycott. Yeah, you know, look, at, games, look yeah. at Sunderland. In yeah. the, well, since the, well, the Premier League, I know the crowds have gone up, back up a bit now. Is, I don't even know what league they're playing these days. But anyway, um, they're like, they, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a natural thing. And, and, the, and the people who want to boycott will become emboldened the longer the team doesn't do well because their message will be easier to transmit because people will think, yeah, I can miss a game because we're shite and we're getting beat every week. And if we win games of football, just like Alan Pardew did in 11-12, you can do anything. If you win games of football, you can do anything. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and that's what comes down to it. And I, and I get it. I get the people who, who don't want to go to the game and convince others to try and get Mark Ashley out by boycotting. And I also understand the point of view of people saying, I'm not letting that wanker ruin my social group or not let me take my son or daughter to a game. I get it. Winning and losing football matches is the answer. And I think yeah. everything else is just noise. Uh, yeah, no, that's very well put. And it, and, it will, and it has always been thus. It has always been thus. If they start winning games, it will all disappear. Uh, if they don't, then as you said, there'll be a natural boycott because the team will be miserable. And there is that appetite, I think, to walk away. People are going through gritted teeth again yeah. because of Mike Ashley. But it all comes back to Mike Ashley. It all comes back to Mike Ashley. Every sign leads to Mike Ashley for why Newcastle United are in the mess they are in. A little bit of Rafa Benitez, but we won't go there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's Mike Ashley. He's been there for 12 years. We are in this cycle. And boycott or not, you know, on a match day, I think if you're going to go to the game, though... Uh, Try and enjoy it. I guess I don't. I, 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 that's probably what I mean by uniting. Go to a game and try and cheer and support the team and get behind them. Not snipe. Not moan. I mean, it's August. <laughs> we've got Please, to, I've got months of this to come. <laughs> Can I just ask you one question, Adam? Because yeah. time's yeah. cracking on. Yeah. Um, you know this. This percep- there is a perception amongst some of the fan base and the, the people who tweet you abuse that you. you oh, my you, friends. <laughs> You don't like Rafa Benitez. You didn't. You, you wanted him gone. You you were happy that he's left, and you're gonna get accused if you weren't in his inner circle. Like, could, why don't you just clarify that for people? I loved Rafa Benitez. Um, I was desperate for him to stay. I thought he would stay. As I said earlier, the football club I think would have really kicked on this summer if he had stayed. Um, but Rafa was difficult. Um, he was overly political. Um, he has I feel like he's maybe let me down quite a lot because I thought he was going to stay and I know what he'd said about Chinese football which you probably aren't party to and you wouldn't be and you know I'm in a privileged position where I've heard what he thought about Chinese football and I also know some of the stuff that went on in the summer in terms of the negotiations um, and I have some sympathy for a club that says we can't sign four, five players who are 29, 28 on five-year contracts when you're only, say, a one-year contract. I mean, I did put this in writing in the summer. I wanted Rafa to stay. I think he was slightly disingenuous about the reasons why he left. I think he was happy with the transfer budget. He was relatively happy with the structure. He wanted to be able the freedom to sign whoever he wanted. Newcastle wouldn't give him that rightly or wrongly, but he was going to sign a one-year contract. I don't see how they could do with a one-year contract on the table. And he wanted more money. If, and I said this to the people concerned. If it was up to me, 
I would have paid Rafa the £9.6 million a year that he wanted to keep him. And I think they could have... Whether they'd have kept him then, I don't know. I think he was constantly moving the goalposts at that point because I think he'd had enough. And it all boiled down to 12 months earlier when Mike Ashley took his £30 million loan out of the football club and they shafted Rafa last summer. And I was angry about it, if you remember. I was furious about what they did last summer. But then they tried to heal, the, they tried to heal that damage in January with Almiron, who was his number one transfer target he wanted him more than any other player they went out and got him for him I thought that was a move a gesture in the right direction and what changed from August the 1st with with Rafa saying I want to stay and the club saying they wanted him to stay which is why I wrote on August 1st I thought he would stay July July or June 1st because August 1st no it wasn't even August it was April April, 1st it was April it was was column in April 1st I said he would stay because I knew at that meeting Rafa had said I want to stay now what changed in between April the 1st and May was Rafa wanted was being unreasonable I think in what he wanted in terms of players coming in you can argue the rights and wrongs of that he suddenly wanted a lot more money and it's never been disputed to me that he was effectively trying to get as much as he was going to get in China and as soon as that China offer came in and he was so pissed off from the year before I think there was a little bit of a soft extraction process going on there where he was trying to extract himself without making any there been any blame on him and he was pushing against an open door and it's my job as a journalist when you know some of the things that have been said and I did have some sympathy with the club about signing four or five players on £120,000 a week who were 29 when the manager who was going to sign them wanted to sign a one-year deal and had been in in the last 12 months had been in or made himself in or made it aware that he was interested in all of those jobs so it was you know that Newcastle knew he made it aware he wanted the West Ham job and knew that he'd made it where he wanted the Leicester job. And it's all done through intermediaries, so there's no comeback on Rafa. But they knew he was being touted around Europe, and there was that attitude that even if we give him a one-year deal and we give you everything you want and sign the players that you want to sign, when there's an attractive job, you'll be off. So there was that... I have that slight sympathy there. I'm gutted he's gone. I'm really... Because for all the... This summer is a mess because Rafa has gone the club would have been better if Rafa had stayed but I don't think he was entirely up front or straight about the reasons he's gone he's gone because he wanted out probably for over a year from the from the previous summer and there were 12 million untaxed reasons why he's gone to China a place he never wanted to manage he's gone for the money and when you've got someone who's told you for six months I want things to be done properly it's not about money. It's not about how much money I have to spend. It's not about recruitment. I just want everything to be done properly. He's gone to a league where it's not done properly. So I got angry about that. And I felt let down by Rafa because he'd gone to China. If he'd have left and was sat at home now in the Wirral waiting for a job to come up, I would have had probably far less problem with it than I did. But it's the fact he went to China. To counter that, yeah. um, when he signed that three-year deal back in 2016, it was, it was reported that he was supposed to have control Mm-hmm. Over football matters, yeah. That 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 evidently didn't happen. He was let down constantly. You said he was shafted last summer. He he was he was shafted the whole time. And I and I and I think, you know, George Colgan when he when he came on this podcast mentioned mentioned that, that there was absolutely no trust between between him and the club anymore. And you know, whether he goes for twelve million pounds or whether he goes to to sit at home um, and 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 wait for the next mm. big opportunity to come around. I think it's sort of like it's, personally. Yeah. I think it's a moot point. I think yeah. if, if if why would he sign a contract that would give him even less control than the than the contract okay. that was supposed to give him control that, that they reneged upon? You know, it's why would why would he? 
I can understand him not wanting to stay I, I can under, I can understand why he's gone, but the reasons he's gone for me are still wrong because he did have control. It depends what you mean by absolute control. So You're supposed to have full control of football matters. That's what he given. said, yeah. So he, he he you know, they couldn't sign Joel Linton because Rafa didn't want him. So he he could he could veto any signing, any player leaving. He always had that control. What supposedly allegedly happened this summer is they were trying to take that control off him. That was one of the reasons given by Rafa that he didn't stay. My understanding of it that's slightly different. It was that he literally wanted the freedom to be able to sign Rondon, who wanted ridiculous money. I mean, I think he's you know he was I think he's gone to China for over two hundred and fifty grand a week. Newcastle are never going to do that. They could never do that signing. But Rondon wasn't the problem. It was the three or four other players that he was targeting on 120,000, 150,000 pounds a week. So control, yes, the control, but within that wage structure and the business model they've got. Now, he was shafted. I, you know, last, last summer is when it all unraveled because they told him he could have every penny that was generated. They did give him that in the first summer after the promotion. Um, you also have to understand that when Rafa talks about control... Is a great story when they were in, they were second in the championship, and he wanted to sign. And he told us all, we had us all eating out the palm of his hand. I've got a deal for Andros Townsend lined up. They were second in the championship, and they were going to pay. Fuck, I'm going to say for 17, 18 million for Andros Townsend on wages of eighty to ninety thousand pounds a week when they were second in the championship. And Rafa thought that because he'd sold to Soko that that money was there, so he just assumed he could have that money. And he couldn't. And you saw the financial figures the following year. They were stretched to breaking point. Okay, Mike Ashley could have put in the 14 million or the 16 million to sign in, but he's never going to do that. So I think there was that element that with Rafa, yes, okay, simplistically speaking, he still had that money to spend. But when you look at it, he didn't really have that money to spend because Tottenham were playing in instalments. So that deal was completely unrealistic. And I remember sitting with him in a press room the day before the transfer window shut saying, I'm going to get this player, I'm going to get this player. And it was at that moment where he started with the, I might leave. And he played that I might leave card over and over and over and over again. And you don't know how many times he went off the record. He would never commit himself to Newcastle after that point. And I think something soured then. They went up, it was a little bit better. And then that's last summer, I think he, all those bad feelings that had built up from that Andros Townsend, which is what, January 2017? Everything that had sort of gone wrong there, which seems to me like a basic communication blunder, but I don't think Rafa was being was being upfront with the media at that point because there was no way they could have done. They could literally no way they could have sanctioned that deal. Second in the championship, signing a player on eighty thousand pounds a week. You just, you, no championship club would do that. But Rafa thought in his head, I can get this deal. I should have that player. Fine. I I you know we moved on from that and got on with to, it. To be fair, to be fair to Rafa though, and. We don't know the internal workings and communications at Newcastle United. It seems like a pretty extreme situation where, I mean, when it was so, we had to sell Sissoko, what, August 16? Yeah. So for him, for four months later, to be thinking there was this pot yeah, of that money. That money was there, yeah. And yeah. it wasn't. I well, mean, most clubs the, would borrow and then yes. take the, take the instalments. But Newcastle, but right, you're wrong, you don't do it that way. Well, exactly. So th- that was a, that's a situation yeah, that could easily be resolved just by yeah. changing uh, But that's what I say, that bad feeling that lingered from Jan- that was when it all went wrong. Yeah. It, that soon, January 2017. Is, if you're selling installments, yeah. then buying installments. Yeah. This is what yeah. the club have got to deal with. And you know, Lee Charney, the programme this week, nice to hear from him, saying that there's going to be a transformative <laughs> communication strategy. The club have been saying that for years, it's by the nonsense. way. It's yeah. just nonsense, isn't it? But the club don't help themselves because last summer, 
it, it wasn't released publicly that Ashley had taken money at the club. It came out slowly through the media, like months afterwards. Rafa was foaming, but couldn't say, clearly couldn't have been gagged or couldn't say why. Yeah. Everything comes back to when you look at Rafa Benitez, Andros Townsend would have been a signing for Newcastle United. That fucking like awful run in the championship to the finish line. You know, the championship started off badly, got much better, became enjoyable, typical Newcastle United, apart from the last couple of weeks, and then we would have gone into the next season. So from his point of view, and I'm not speaking for him, I don't know him, he wanted the best for Newcastle United, and that's what Steve Bruce is going to have to win fans over to bring it back to the present, that he is pushing but constantly What you for the say there club. is the phrase that always gets Rafa out of trouble, is that he wanted the best for Newcastle United, and I, and I agree with you. He, he did want the best for Newcastle United, but he also knew they were a self-sufficient football club when he took the job. Did he think he was going to change it from the inside? Maybe. That's what Rafa does. He gets everybody on board and then he tries to change these owners who aren't willing to change. Look, I t- it, it, to go back to why I, I'm not anti-Rafa in the slightest. I'm not. I wish, he'd, I wish he'd stayed. But just the way he left in the summer, for me, to go back to the original point, it just left a bit of a sour taste in the mouth. And it's as much about where he's gone because it was all that I want to I wanna be in, you know, I just want things done properly. I want to be in the top leagues. I want to be doing this. And then 12 million quid offer and he went and took it and, I felt a letdown by him more than anything. And I just felt that Newcastle, with him in charge, with £61 million plus the £30 million from Perez, would he have got the £30 million for Perez? We're going to go off on a tangent about that. But they had a real chance this summer to kick on. And I think there's part of me that I'm, you know, I'm 75% blaming Mike Ashley for the club not being able to kick on. But there's also, in my mind, the way those negotiations happened... And the fact he was only willing to sign a one-year deal and the stuff he wanted to do in and around that, the money he wanted, I'm still 25% where I just think there was a bit of blame attached to Rafa in what happened this summer because if he, it comes down to emotion, really. If he loves Newcastle that much and the supporters and everything else, could he not have signed on for one more year and given just seen what happened with that money this summer? When the money was there, he knew the money was there. He'd seen the accounts. We knew there was money to spend this summer. Could he have given it another year on a one-year deal and just given it one last crack at an opportunity in the club's history where it had that chance to kick on? He chose, and he chose, not to give it one more year. He chose to leave, rightly or wrongly, because he felt that he didn't want to be there anymore. But in the back of his mind, it wasn't just that he didn't want to be there anymore, is that there was £12 million after tax reason in China I mean, waiting for him. Ultimately, you know, you say that he knew the money was there, and we have seen a bit of money spent. It's nothing spectacular, it's sort of part well, of the course. Sort of, they spent the yeah. 61, haven't they, effectively? Yeah, yeah. but it's, I mean, ultimately, I don't think he knew anything for the, that the club told him. So it's like, you know, well, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a step in the unknown. I think we're going to leave we're probably have to, we're gonna have to wrap up, unfortunately. Um, Luke, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Um, uh, thanks for, for, for coming down. Um, f- if you enjoy what you hear, um, please subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash TF podcast. Loads of content behind the paywall. Um, we, we provide content all the way through the week. All your favorite, all your favorite True Faith characters. Check us out for about seven quid a month and see what you think. We will get you through the bad times. Group therapy is what we do. We'll be back very, very soon. Please subscribe, and we'll see you soon. Cheers. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. 
If you haven't heard of the EE system yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.